Hello and welcome to the Hungry for Adventure podcast. I'm your host, Alex Mason. I love going on adventures and I love talking about food and I know lots of other people do too. So in this podcast, I invite my fellow adventurers to discuss their dream post-adventure feast, choosing their favorite starter, main course, dessert and drink. There will be a healthy amount of food, a swirl of adventure and there may also be a dollop of poo talk. You have been warned. My guest this week is Irish travel blogger Johnny Ward. We met once over Zoom, which you'll find out more about, and I found out he has quite the appetite for adventure, having visited every country in the world and is now on a mission to visit the North Pole, the South Pole, and climb the Seven Summits. And he managed to find the time in between all of that to have a chat with me. Our conversation did have to cross seven different time zones, so the audio quality is patchy in some places, but I hope it doesn't affect the enjoyment of this episode too much because Johnny has some incredible stories from his adventures. If you have iTunes, please give it a five-star rating and maybe leave a five-star review. It helps other people to find the podcast and it makes me feel good about what I'm doing too. Stick around at the end of the podcast after the music for a bit more chat, but for now, let's get straight to it. Here is Johnny Ward's dream post-adventure meal. Johnny, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Alex. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. So we don't really know each other, but we met virtually recently on Zoom. I'm the co-founder of a company called Monkey Fist Adventures, and that was set up to facilitate my ocean rowing challenges. But now we are helping to organize ocean rowing for other people. And you responded to an advert for crew for the Atlantic Crossing we're putting together. And I found out that you have led a pretty adventurous life already. And we are, of course, recording this remotely, not just because of COVID rules, but because you are in Thailand and I'm in the UK. What's it like over there at the moment? Um, I'm not sure if any of the kind of Asian COVID news reaches the UK or Ireland, but it's been pretty normal here, to be honest. The thing is about Asia, like maybe you, I remember growing up watching movies or whatever in Japan, and when people were ill, they would wear masks. But actually, what we used to think as Westerners, I believe, certainly maybe I can speak for myself here rather than everyone else, is I assumed that that was people who were hypochondriacs and they were worried about getting sick. And that's why you would see Japanese people wearing masks or Chinese people wearing masks. But actually, that wasn't the case. What they've been doing for years is they've been considerate towards others and they wore a mask if they were sick to avoid other people getting sick. So they were way ahead of the curve. So COVID-wise... Everyone's just got a mask on, but apart from that, the numbers are so low. It's pretty normal life. Bars are open, restaurants, gyms, everything's been pretty normal. So did you have any type of lockdown at all? We had a lockdown initially. I was actually in Yemen in February and I was I got the last flight out of Yemen, thank God, and one of the last flights into Thailand. And then the airport closed for about a month in March and they had a, a lockdown, but it wasn't a hot, it was a curfewed lockdown. So it was only from 9 p.m. or something. And then they stopped booze sales for about 10 days as well, or maybe two weeks. But that was all in March. And that was all like a kind of intense flurry for yeah two, three weeks. And then since April, really, it's been pretty normal. Wow. Lucky you. <laughs> we're just coming out of our second lockdown. So, well, we're not even really coming out of it. We're going into another tier. But anyway, that's really boring. So let's talk about adventure. For those who don't know you, just give us a brief overview of your adventuring experience. Well, I'm Irish. I hope you can still hear from my accent, although I'm 36 now. So I left Ireland when I was 18. Uh, grew up single parent on welfare, pretty broke and always wanted to, always would hear about my friends and uh, going on holiday and summer holidays in school to, to 
to Spain or whatever. And then the, the wealthier kids getting to go to uh, USA or Disney World. And I was just always stuck in Ireland, not being able to go anywhere. So it was always my dream to, to be free and to travel because we were so broke all the time. And then I went to uni, 18 to 22. And then the day that I finished uni, I flew one way to the USA, actually. And I, I worked on summer camps which a lot of people do that come to America thing. And then I kind of have it, had an epiphany that I want to live a life a little bit different to the status quo. So I still had no money, of course. I had student debt and my mom couldn't afford to give me any money. So then I ended up, ended up teaching English in Thailand for a year. That was 2006, 2007. And from then, I knew that I was never going to enter the real world. And then I was on this quest to become the first person from Ireland to visit every country in the world. And that took me like 12 or 13 years to finish that. And now I'm doing loads of physical challenges, which is kind of how the rule came about that I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Awesome. Yeah, we definitely will discuss all of those things in a bit more detail. So when it comes to food, what's your relationship with food like in everyday life? Would you describe yourself as a foodie? Um, no, actually. I mean, I, I think that everyone thinks they're a foodie. And then I actually, because I'm a blogger, then I know a lot of food bloggers. And then I actually see what a real hardcore foodie is. And then I realize, no, I'm absolutely not a foodie. Because some people like travel for hours across cities or even from sit- cities to cities just to eat something. I would never do that. And I'm, uh, I'm plant-based, so my options are often a lot more limited. Um, yeah, of course, I enjoy my food like everyone. But ultimately, especially when I'm doing all these physical challenges and stuff, I prefer to make sure I know all my macros are covered and then think about the, the flavor next. It's really interesting for me having done a few recordings now with different people as to what everybody um, defines a foodie as because it's all really different. And yeah, it's been one of the most interesting parts for me. When thinking about your dream post-adventure meal, did you find it easy or difficult? Uh, Actually, pretty tricky, actually. It's because I'm not daunted by the food options at all. I know we're going to get enough calories and all that. So no, I find it quite tricky. The thing that I look forward to is the freedom and being able to connect with people I love and stuff. So the food, food's quite low down the list of stuff that I'll be excited about when I land. <laughs> oh, believe me. <laughs> when you get off that boat, you're going to be thinking about food. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I'll probably regret saying that now. So we're going to start you off by keeping you well hydrated with some water. Are you having still sparkling or tap? Still all day. Oh, actually, well, it depends. You know, I travel a lot. Like I'm based in Thailand. Actually, when I, when I, when I was in Ireland, like growing up in Ireland, I was addicted to tap water. I love it. It's so fresh and nice, but I can't do that generally when I'm traveling. So now I'm just so obsessed with with the uh, bottled water, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I spend a lot of time in Lanzarote and although you could technically drink the tap water there, most people choose not to because it's from a big desalination plant and it doesn't really taste that nice. So you get used to drinking bottled water all the time, but that's a lot of plastic. And, but that you become so indoctrinated by not being able to drink tap water. Sometimes when I go back to Ireland to visit my mom I, oh, I, in the supermarket, like I buy a bottle of water because I've just been living in Thailand on and off for years. And then people look at me like, why are you paying two quid for a bottle of water, you lunatic? And then I remember no one buys water at home. <laughs> so what's it like over in Thailand with pla- the plastic situation? Because from my experience, there simply isn't enough education in some of the Southeast Asian countries about the terrible effects of single-use plastics. Are they doing anything in, in Thailand to combat it? Pretty brutal, to be honest. You get bananas wrapped in, in plastic bags, buy it, and then get a, put the banana covered in plastic in a plastic bag when you do it. When you do it. Uh, yeah, it's pretty brutal, to be honest. They're slowly starting to turn the tide. I think there was a guy recently, 
kind of like the a younger equivalent of Mick Jagger in Thailand from a Thai rock band called Big Bang. He ran he ran the length of Thailand over like five months as a message to stop single use plastic. And he stopped. If you, anyone who's listening who's been to Thailand knows it was a Seven Eleven on every corner, and they can't feed you with enough plastic when you walk into those bloody places. Anyway, he started this campaign, ran the length of Thailand to insist that they would only issue plastic bags and plastic straws if you proactively requested it. They wouldn't hand it out as default. And he got that, he got that changed and it's been a massive impact on, on the Thai culture actually because they're so used to bags. So it's just started to change in the last couple of years. That's, that's an awesome thing to have done though. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, you legend. So you're from Ireland and you now live in Thailand. And one of your biggest adventure experiences was that you have visited every country in the world. Firstly, what made you decide you wanted to do that? Actually, one of the biggest drivers, well, ultimately, the simple answer is I want to be free. And I still maintain that now at 36. So I want to be free. That's the most important thing to me. On a deeper level, like growing up broke and watching travel shows or reading books about Ranulph Fiennes or whatever, it's just always old, posh, rich, public school white guys doing loads of cool stuff around the world. And I always aspired to do that kind of stuff. But coming from my kind of background, shitty school, no money, blah, blah, blah. No one, you'd no one to look up to. So I could like, yeah, I wanted to do that stuff. I wanted to roll across the ocean. I want to climb Mount Everest, but it's just all these, these posh people with connections and sponsors. So I wanted to then hopefully be able to showcase to people who grew up like me that it's actually possible for anyone. You don't have to come from a specific demographic for it to be viable. So how many countries are there in the world? <laughs> well, this is going to draw out my like, minor autism here. It's a massive issue what, uh, what, what a country is. Let's say this, otherwise your entire podcast will be me talking about how many countries there, there are and what constitutes a country. The United Nations says there's 193 countries, right? And then that doesn't include Taiwan because China are so powerful, even though Taiwan is a country. doesn't include Kosovo, Vatican City, or Palestine, all of which are countries as well. So if we add those four to the 193, we call it 197 as a kind of hard line. And then you get into the, the politics of Tibet and Hong Kong and all this, which I also agree should be countries, but technically they aren't. So anyway, 197, I would say. I was reading your blog post on it, actually, and I think that the thing that surprised me most was that Greenland isn't a country. Yeah, Denmark is Danish. That's mad, isn't it? I was just always assumed that was a country. I never really thought anything different. Well, if you're in a pub, and if you're ever in Greenland and you're in a pub drinking with Greenlandic people, just make sure you don't tell them that Greenland's not actually a country. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> it's a touchy subject. <laughs> I looked at your list of countries you've been to. And I think my geography is pretty good. Plus, I really love maps. And I reckon I could point out around 90% of the countries that you've been to on a map. The Pacific Islands would be a bit of a struggle, I think. But there are also three places that I have never heard of. And two of them were in the not a country, but probably should be category. And I'm probably going to make a fool of myself with the pronunciation. But um, Transnistria and Nagorno-Karabakh. Did I get close to those pronunciations? I mean, as far as I know, as far as some clueless Irish guy knows, it sounded perfect. But if I was going from this year and going to Karabakh, I'm not sure it's how perfect either of us are. So where, where are these places and why aren't they countries and why should they be? Right. Well, I'm going to step very gently here because, of course, I don't know the ins and outs of the politics of these nations. And I shouldn't profess to. But Nagorno-Karabakh is a disputed territory wedged in between Azerbaijan and Armenia. 
in the Caucasus region, kind of just east of Turkey. Azerbaijan claim it and Armenia claim it, and they claim kind of autonomy from both. And that's actually in the news at the moment. People are regularly getting killed there, to be honest. It's really the big battle for who's going to control it. And then Transnistria is something similar. It's a tiny little nation landlocked within Moldova that makes um, loads of cognac, (laughs) which is what I spent most of my time drinking when I was there. And... The other one is Comoros, which is a country, but I haven't the first clue as to where it is. Where is Comoros? I also didn't know that when I was doing my every country thing. That was one that I didn't know either. And I was like, oh, shit, I've got to go to this tiny island off the coast of Africa. So it's kind of, you know, like, obviously the continent of Africa and then east of Africa, there's a huge island, which is um, Madagascar, right? Yeah. And then beyond that, there's Seychelles and Reunion, which is not a country, but all those little paradise islands. And then just north of Madagascar. I say just north, it's probably a few hours flight, but there's a tiny, tiny, tiny country, like a tenth of the size of Ireland. Yeah, called Comoros. It's a very poor country. Paradise, but independent. And obviously they've got no natural resources or anything really strongly Islamic um, culture. Yeah, and most people have never heard of it. It's, it's one of the least, five least visited countries in the world, I think. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Well, we've learned something new today. Hopefully everyone <laughs> now knows where Comoros is. So quite literally out of all the countries in the world, you have chosen to settle in Thailand. Why Thailand? Is it because of the food? Uh, the food is, is banging. But no, I don't think it is, to be honest. So I'm 36 now. When I 2007, when I moved here, broke still um, to teach English. I was living in Chiang Mai, a city in the north. Um, and I was working at a language school. And I was only working three or four hours in the evening. It was like a private language institution. So in the mornings, I would study Thai for two or three hours at a school, a different school. So then I learned the language and the culture. And it was my first year that I'd spent outside UK or Ireland because I hadn't been on holiday and stuff like that. So it was just such a massive culture shock, but a positive one. Anyway, then I ran out of money, traveled, ran out of money, traveled, was teaching in Korea, was living in Australia. Then I started my blog, which was generating revenue. So then once, my, once I was making money from my, my travel blog, all I needed was my laptop. So I didn't really know what to do. I knew I was going to try to visit every country, but I needed a base. You can't literally, you can't travel indefinitely for a decade. You'd lose your mind. So I needed a base. And I thought, I know I can, I used to get paid about 500 quid, $700 or so a month teaching English in Thailand. And my blog, my blog was making about five or $600 a month. And I knew I could survive on that much. So then I moved back to Thailand within the first year of starting my blog, knowing that I could scrape by as I tried to grow it. And then studied the language some more, studied the culture some more, and things worked out okay online. And then I was kind of free, but I had settled in Thailand at the time. And then now I'm still here. Although I'm really, over the 10 years that I did the every country thing, I was only in Thailand two or three months a year. I was traveling eight, nine, 10 months a year. So do you, do you speak Thai now? Yeah, I speak Thai. Awesome. That's really cool. I've not made it to Thailand yet, and I love Thai food, so it'd be one of my top choices. And it's a place I'd love to visit. It's great for veg. Is it? Yeah, but you know, Thai, Asian, Thai culture especially, but East Asian culture generally, when you order a dish, the meat generally is interchangeable. So you could choose, obviously, chicken, pork, beef, whatever, and there would always be like a tofu option, regardless of whether you're vegetarian or not. So it means that you can pretty much have anything that non-veg can have because tofu is nine times out of ten an option. So it's great. So is Thai Thai food 
the same as British Thai food because it worries me that because I like British Thai food, when I get to Thailand, eventually I'm going to be like, oh, hang on, this isn't what I'm used to. So is it is it any way the same or is it pretty different? It's funny, it's funny you say that, you know, like when I talk about this every country thing, people think I'm going to be some snobby, cultured, overly cultured moron. But for example, Chinese food in Northern Ireland or England where I went to uni and Indian food in, in England, I personally prefer than when I'm in India, which is horrific. I know, <laughs> but it's true. And I think because I left, I didn't really know anything about Thailand when I moved here. I, I don't know if I'd even eaten Thai food. I, left, I moved here when I was 22. Anyway, I knew nothing about it. So all my Thai food experience has been only Thai food in Thailand. So I might get the, the opposite now. I, I think Thai food's pretty brutal when I go back to, to Europe, to be honest. But then what I'm saying is you might have become accustomed to it and you might think the opposite when you come here. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I'd like to give it a go. So if you ever want a visitor, then <laughs> I'll come over you're and see you. <laughs> what is your go-to Thai meal when you're out there? So like I said, I normally spend, nine, let's say, nine months a year traveling and then three months in Thailand. Although obviously with COVID, I've been here six, seven, eight months now, so long as I've been here. And when I'm in Thailand, I usually use that time to get fit because I'm, I climb a lot of mountains and the ultra marathons and stuff so when i'm i'm a bit like i'm an intense kind of guy so i'm all or nothing so if i know i've got like an ultra or a mountain to climb i go to thailand for two months before it or three months before it and i just focus on training and eating right so then i'm just having crappy protein shakes and bloody fake meat and and brown rice it's pretty boring but over the last seven months i've actually been able to enjoy thailand a bit more than just treating it as a gym and, and a macro counter but what, do you want me to tell you the actual names? Because I don't think you're going to know any of the dishes, to be honest. <laughs> well, no. Is there anything that's relatable to what we have here? Like a nice yellow curry or a, <laughs> or some noodles? or Sure. I think like those cur- like the, the curries that you have in, in, like if I go back to visit my sister in, in England or whatever. I mean, of course, they're available in Thailand. Slightly different, admittedly. But that's the kind of thing you would have if you go to a restaurant with, with like a group of friends in the evening. You know what I mean? It's not something you just grab on the go they have these things like they have some a, a kind of papaya salad called sumtam have you ever heard of that nope that's the basically what every thai person eats twice a day it sounds good it's cold papaya raw uh not yet ripe papaya so it's kind of it's savory and then loads of chilies normally they put crab and shrimp in it but obviously I, I don't eat that so i don't have it but it's super super spicy and then the other thing they have maybe you do know it in thai it's called grapao but it's in, on an English menu, it's um, minced pork or or meat substitute if you're veg um, with basil and fried chilies. Have you had that before? Uh, I don't think I have, but again, that sounds really nice too. Yes, it's brilliant. That's Those two things are what Thai people eat every day. And then Pad Thai, of course, is like, because it's got the word Thai in it, I, I think foreigners think that that's what Thai people eat all of it every day, but that's not actually true. Oh, I would. I'd quite happily eat Pad Thai every day. I love it. That's what my sister, my sister comes, she's like that too. Is there anything you miss from home that you can't get over there? Yes. I really miss Linda McCartney sausage rolls and Linda McCartney sausages. Oh, they're so good. I love them. Oh my God, they're amazing. But actually, I've just found a supermarket and you can buy them in here, but they're like about 10 quid for a box. So I'd maybe get it like once a month and treat myself. Oh, they are good though. <laughs> Linda, Linda McCartney does a good range. They've just brought out these, actually these um, tomato-y basil meatball kind of things. They're really good too. So if you get a chance to try them. And another thing I miss is, this is so trashy. But when I was at uni, I used to eat Subway all the time, foot-long meatball before I was veg. And I heard that 
in Western countries have now got a veggie footlong meatball. Is that true? Oh, I don't know, actually. I haven't been to Subway for ages. It's one of those things when um, when I'm away doing something. So when I was on the Appalachian Trail, I ate loads of Subways. But when, I, <laughs> but when I'm here in the UK, it's something I, I really avoid. Uh, but I do like it when I'm away. But no, I'll have to actually, I, I walk past one on my way to Tesco. So I'll, I'll check in for you and uh, I'll let you know if they have them. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of stuff, like if, if KFC releases like a, a, a vegan Zinger burger or whatever, McDonald's or Burger King, that takes like another year, two, three years before it reaches Asia. So I'm just watching everyone else hammer all this trashy food. If I'm hungover or whatever, I'm so jealous. Moving on to your nibbles, what have you chosen to nibble on? Balsamic vinegar, olive oil and quality bread. What type of bread are you going for? You know what? I'm not actually much of an expert, but living in Asia, the bread's horrific. They add sugar to everything. So any bread that originates from Western Europe would be a gift. They do. Have you ever been to Carluccio's? No. Is a, it's a restaurant? Yeah, it's like a chain restaurant. And actually, I'm not, I'm not sure they're doing very well at the moment. They might have closed down, actually. But they do these bread baskets where you get a selection of different breads and then you get the pot of like oil and vinegar. It's so good. But I hate it when they serve um, the oil and vinegar in like a ramekin where all the vinegar is like sunk to the bottom and then you just kind of get a whole wadge of oil and then you have to get like this massive overwhelming hit of vinegar at the end. But you can't beat a bit of, a bit of bread and oil. I know, but then I never... I, I eat so if I go to a quality Italian anywhere in Thailand, I eat so much of the bread and balsamic vinegar and oil, I barely can eat the main course because I'm so excited to get real bread again. <laughs> How much bread do you reckon you could eat before you spoil your meal? Absolutely shitloads. <laughs> like, definitely two refills. So that'd be three baskets. And if I'm with my missus, she eats really small portions. So they probably give a, a portion, a basket for essentially for two people. I'll eat all of it and then they'll refill it twice. So that's probably three baskets, for, which is obviously six servings. I'd easily demolish that and then regret it instantly when I paid for my overpriced pasta. Well, this is your dream meal, so you can have as many refills as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Out of all the countries you've been to, which country would you say does the best bread? It's got to be France, doesn't it? Oh, okay. Just has to be. Europe's just got it right. Europe, to be honest, half of Europe's amazing and half of it's disastrous. But the bread and the wine and the cheese, you can't go too wrong. Yeah, France, nice, nice crusty baguette. Sounds really good right now. Oh, oh yeah, they're not quite, they're not quite bread, are they? But oh, they are so good. Ah, oh really? What, what would that be called? It's a pastry. Oh God! Wow, I never would have referred to it as that. There you go. That's a, that, that's the height of my cultural knowledge. It's basically a slab of butter with a bit of sprinkling of flour in it, but <laughs> it's so good. That qualifies. That qualifies as bread. Maybe technically it doesn't. <laughs> so with your every country uh, challenge, I guess you could call it, what requirements did you set yourself for visiting every country? Because there was a thing going around a few years ago about this girl who had become the youngest person or something oh, to visit every country. I had a massive argument with her and she blocked me on social media. Oh, really? <laughs> but I mean, yeah. when I read about her, it turns out that she'd spent like a couple of hours or something in, in a place. And yeah. I personally don't really find that particularly impressive. I don't think that's visiting a country in my opinion. Agreed. So what criteria did you set yourself to be able to tick off having visited somewhere? Well, for me, Alex, so it took me, what, almost 12 years to do it. So I, I averaged like almost a month in each country over the 12 years, almost full-time travel. So I personally didn't really have to set any criteria because I wasn't doing it in some kind of rush to get Insta-famous and get a TV show. You know what I mean? That wasn't my goal. I loved the freedom of just, of just moving from A to B. And 
the first half of those 12 years, that's the first six years I was still really broke. So I was traveling on kind of less than 10 quid a day, $10 a day, actually. So I didn't fly for four or five years. I couldn't, I couldn't afford it. So for example, I went from Bangkok all the way back to Ireland overland. I went from Cape Town all the way up through to Syria to, to Turkey overland. Another time I went from Cape Town again, all the way up to Morocco overland, all the way from uh, Panama to south southern tip of uh, South America, Ushuaia, all over land. So, I mean, even if I wanted to rush that, I couldn't because the, the sheer distances would take weeks to get across each country, which is, is what I did every time. So actually, personally, I didn't set any criteria because I knew I, I wasn't rushing in and out anyway. It wasn't an issue to me to do that. That's good. I think that is um, a better way to do it than just trying to visit everyone as fast as you can. I don't really see the achievement in that. But um, what was the well, last... The, the, the achievement is 400,000 um, Instagram followers and a sponsorship by Reebok. That was the goal and that was achieved. Oh, well, if if that's what she wanted, then good for her. <laughs> I know, but then... But anyhow, I don't want to get into it. About the art. Let's carry on. I feel like I've lit, <laughs> lit some kind of torch paper underneath you. <laughs> I tell you what really upset me. So I grew up just with my mum, my granny, and my sister, right? Just all women. Then when it came to visiting every country, only about 100 people have ever done it in history. And maybe about 25 of those are women, let's say, which is pretty impressive number considering how difficult it is in, in countries like Saudi and Niger and stuff as a woman, right? And... I think the first woman to visit every country in the world was in the 70s or 80s, and then a few, a couple more in the 90s, a couple more in the 2000s, and then now it's becoming a thing, right, where people are doing it, trying to get famous, like the millennial curse. And this girl changed her homepage on her blog to the face, massive writing, the face of women and women's achievement. That's what she wrote on her own homepage. And then the tagline was, the first woman to visit every country in the world, which was the most disrespectful thing because she was about the 15th person to visit. And then she's like, well, did they document it every day? Did they get Guinness to ratify it? I'm like, no, but they did it without the help of Instagram, without without a rich family to pay for it. And they did it for the the beauty of the culture and, and... and open in your mind, not to chase clouds. And I just thought it was very disrespectful what she did to the woman who, who preceded her. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. <laughs> and then she blocked me. Yeah. Oh, well, no <laughs> loss. <laughs> Which was the last country you visited uh, to, to complete this? And what did you do to celebrate? Literally, the last country was Norway. But psychologically, it was Yemen which was my second last country. There obviously was a civil war in Yemen at the moment and it was very difficult to get in and dangerous and and all all the rest. And I ended up hitchhiking on this Indian cargo ship for four days to get into it. And I tried and failed like six or seven times and eventually I got in. And And I had been saving Norway for my actual last country because there would be... Uh, a lot of friends and family coming to celebrate with me, which is what I did in Norway. It was amazing. We stayed in one of those ice hotels in the Arctic Circle. Have you seen those? The actual hotels made of ice and the bed is made of ice and all and you sleep on it. It's cool. Yeah, it looks amazing. Um, so yeah, Yemen. But to be honest, like when I was crying tears of happiness and stuff, that was actually in Yemen because I've been trying and failing to get in. I knew once I'd reached Yemen that Norway was a formality to visit and it would be a big party and everything with St. Patrick's Day there. And yeah, but so Norway, but for me, emotionally, it was Yemen. Which country would you say you had the best food in? Do I have to choose one or can I choose a couple? Yeah, go. I mean, it's pretty mean of me to to, to narrow it down to one considering there's 197 to choose from. That's like when people say, <laughs> oh, you hiked the PCT, it took you five months. Which was the best bit? And you're like, there isn't one best bit. So yeah, knock yourself out. Have as many as you want. <laughs> okay, because I think about it a lot. 
and also this they're veg friendly so thailand like i told you because they can just throw tofu in it's all about the flavor of the sauces rather than the actual ingredient you know so thailand for sure is in the short list india same reason although it's really unhealthy but it's amazing and mexico and then i guess you have to choose italy as well i think it's just got to be those four. Oh, and lebanon let's say as well but lebanon kind of constitutes all of that Medi- arabic mediterranean area you know what i mean well, that's a good, the good mix. It's a good mix. I like that. Did you have any unusual food experiences anywhere? Yes. Pre-veggie days, I was in North Korea and my guide served me dog soup. Oh. <laughs> what was that like? Horrific. I was, I was already like, I was already feeling like a hypocrite because I was always talking about how much I love animals, but then I would go and eat my bloody cheeseburger at night. So I was feeling like a hypocrite for years anyway. And then I love dogs of all animals. And then here I am eating it. It was one of the catalysts for me giving up meat, actually. I felt horrific. I still feel guilty about it now. Tastes like lamb. I'm sure everyone's thinking, what did it that taste like lamb? Exactly like lamb, you wouldn't know. Interesting. Mm. Did you know it was dog when you ate it? Yeah, yeah. But you're in North Korea. The whole bloody thing's weird anyway. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm sitting on the floor. I'm the least flexible man in the world. I'm already in discomfort just trying to fold my legs and they've served me this soup. And it was a very strange situation. Oh. <laughs> um, one of my worst food experiences, I'd probably combine with one of my best because it was when I was volunteering in Tanzania and went, we went to this very remote village in the mountains and where people have literally nothing and yet they wanted to provide for us. So they gave us their only bananas, which is something I kind of still feel bad about to this day because they had nothing else. And it was such an incredible experience seeing these people and living, seeing them living their lives without the need for all the material crap we have here and all the terrible influence of the media and the judgment of society. And so all that was amazing. But they also gave us milk to drink and it was straight from the cow. And I don't like milk anyway. And it was warm and lumpy and it tasted like udders and it had like this undertone of cow manure so it was really hard to stomach I mean luckily my friend Lindsay was there and she managed to switch her cup with me and she drank it because she could drink it but I just I just couldn't do it despite that I would really love to return to Tanzania one day where would you like to return to are there any places where you thought you didn't have enough time and you'd you'd like to go back yeah I really want to go to Mali there's also kind of a civil war going on there so I only spent maybe week there and i really want to go to timbuktu but the islamic jihadists have currently taken over the area so it's really dangerous to go at the moment when that calms down for sure i want to go back there but then i want to go back to loads of places since i finished every country in 2017 i've been to maybe 50 countries since then and obviously they're all repeats because i just love it i love the freedom and i love just getting off a plane and different language different food different culture i can't get enough of it so i was just I would, there's not anywhere that I wouldn't go back to. So yeah, I want to go everywhere again. Maybe the first person to visit every country twice. Who knows? <laughs> Someone's done that, actually. Oh, have they? Oh, crikey. <laughs> wow, it's hard to find things that people haven't done, isn't it? So as you said, there are a few places in the world that aren't really seen as safe. Um, you've mentioned Yemen. Was there anywhere else that was really hard to get into? Yes, Libya and Somalia were both quite sketchy. And then you have countries like North Korea is kind of easy. Afghanistan, I took my mum actually to Afghanistan on holiday. That was wild. That was a wild trip. Iraq, I just recently took 15 people who follow my blog there. Syria as well, I took a group there recently. They're kind of okay. But these are countries that people would assume are hard. But Libya and Somalia are actually really sketchy. I remember there's only one way to get into Somalia because Turkey have got some weird foreign policy going on there with Erdogan. No good things he gets up to anyway. 
So there's flights from Istanbul into Mogadishu, and I flew in on Turkish Air. And there's kind of two compounds that you can stay on that are secured, in inverted commas. And one of them was overrun by uh, Al-Shabaab the day before we went there. Three consecutive car bombs. One blew up the first line of events, next one, next line of events, next one, next line of events, because they were, they were killing the home office official or something inside. It's just terrifying. And then you, you realize, like, doing these kind of challenges... I mean, they're driven by ego, really, aren't they? You hope to do some good, but we do it for ourselves as well. And then I'm just thinking, like, is this a, is this a good decision? And that's something that you just have to battle with as you, as you go on with these kind of challenges, I, f- I find. You know what I mean? Weighing up the benefit, the cost-benefit analysis. And then Libya, I had a wild experience getting into Libya, where, again, it's a failed state since Gaddafi, since the Americans removed Gaddafi. And no one would give me a visa. I'd been to maybe 20 embassies. I'd spent, I spent two years going to every country in Africa. And the second year that I was in Africa, yeah, I've been to like 20 countries, embassies, Libyan embassies in wherever, Cameroon, Guinea, wherever, and they all rejected me. And then one guy who followed my blog just sent me a message saying, hi, Johnny, I know you can't really get into Libya. They're not issuing visas. But my dad was part of the revolution in a city in the south. So believe it or not, if you just fly to Tunisia and then take like a 20-hour train to this city in the south of Tunisia, and then when you're in the airport... I'll have booked a flight for you and just tell them that my dad's waiting for you in this airport in Libya and they'll let you on without any visa. Sounds super dodge, but... <laughs> oh no. And ISIS had taken over the east of, of Libya and this city is in the east of Libya. And I was thinking, oh, this guy's a hero. He's going to finally get me into Libya. I've been trying failing for a year. And then when I was on that night train in Tunisia to the south of Tunisia, I was just thinking like, what if this is just some ISIS guy just pretending to help me and he just picks me up as soon as I land and then again I was thinking like is this worth this like ego trip is it worth it versus risking my life and then upsetting my family if I get killed and I could see the headlines of me in an orange jumpsuit and no, no one would be like oh poor guy everyone will be like what an idiot he went to the east of Libya in a failed state where ISIS are moving it you know and they'd be right to think that anyway I did it anyway so and it was fine and the guy was lovely <laughs> Well, luckily, it was all a good story in the end. But you're, I mean, you're Irish, blonde and white. So it must have been pretty hard to blend in in some of these more dangerous places. Did you ever feel like you were in any danger? Yeah, loads of times. When I was in Angola, I was getting a transport from, I landed in Angola, another bloody another bloody difficult country to visit. Although I, I think recently we just started tourist visas. Anyway, in my day, three or four years, it was almost impossible. And another guy who followed my blog kind of fake employed me and I got sponsored for a work visa for this catering company in Angola. And when I landed in Angola, I was getting transport from the airport and the compound. We're in like this old beaten down SUV and I park, we're stuck in gridlock traffic and a motorbike pulls up beside me. The guy jumps off the back of the motorbike and shoots the guy in the car beside me, right in front of me, maybe a meter from me. Like nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me being there, being a foreigner. I just happened to be beside the car that they were targeting. And then he he shoots the guy right in front of me twice, grabs his bag, and they just speed off. I'm just sitting in the car being like, what is going on? Terrified. But yeah, I've had a few experiences like that, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, it happens, I guess, when you are going to dangerous places for years on end. Wow. Wow, that's, um, I don't really know what to say about that. We're going to move on to your starter now. What have you chosen to start with? Goat cheese salad, please. Awesome. So what, what's your salad consisting of? Actually, I'm, I'm the worst cook in the world. So I just know that green leaves are lettuce. <laughs> or are they always lettuce? I don't know. Anyway, 
green leaves, maybe the odd red onion, and one kilo of goat's cheese. Oh, okay. Goat's cheese isn't part of a plant-based diet, is it? Uh, no, it's not, no. <laughs> so is cheese the thing you miss the most? Well, it's something I rarely eat, to be honest. I only have, I maybe have pizza once a month and maybe less, to be honest. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm, I would say I'm, I wouldn't refer to myself as vegan. I refer, I refer to myself as vegetarian. But the only thing that, like I don't take milk or, or anything, but I do occasionally have cheese, which is why I don't consider myself vegan. And I hate myself for it every time I eat it. Oh. <laughs> so wh- how do you feel about goat cheese? I like the one that doesn't taste too goaty. Do you like the really strong stuff? Now I'm trying to appreciate it all because I'm, I'm on my journey to, become, to taking the plunge and removing all uh, animal-based things from my diet. So I just want to appreciate it all before I finally take the plunge when I move. I'm currently in Bangkok. I'm moving to Chiang Mai next year, and that's when I'm going to take the plunge. So stronger the better. Something that I can savor and remember in the years to come when I can't have it anymore. I imagine veganism is probably fairly easy in places like Thailand because they don't eat a lot of dairy anyway over there, do they? Completely, yeah. And I didn't really eat much dairy growing up, so it's not something I really miss, to be honest. Although pizza, especially if you're like socializing with friends or watching the football or whatever, it's such an easy, shareable, delicious thing, isn't it? Vegan pizza's crap. Yeah, vegan cheese is not, not great, is it? No, I'm sure it'll improve in the years to come. What's your main motivation to becoming vegan? Not to be a hypocrite. Not to say that I love animals, but participate in their suffering. Sure, sorry, that's a bit, that's quite sick thing, but that's what, that says it all in my mind. Have you watched that Cowspiracy documentary on Netflix? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's a catalyst in a lot of people's motivation to become a vegan, so it's such a powerful documentary. Yeah, I, I worry about the the kind of bro science of it sometimes though i think like i understand the passion of people supporting animal rights and environmentalism and then sometimes i worry that the documentaries go too far and they undermine the message by overstretching when the message itself is quite a simple clear correct decision and i worry sometimes like some of the facts get debunked and then sometimes it can do a lot of damage to the movement too i worry about that i imagine thailand is not too dissimilar to indonesia uh, I went there a few years ago and I ate at this great little vegan restaurant called Tasty Vegan in Bali. And it was so hard to find, but I really recommend anyone who is going to Bali to check it out because there's only four tables. You feel like you've walked into someone's house. And it was the first time I've tried tempeh and it was absolutely delicious. Yeah, completely confident. Does it? I have no idea. <laughs> That's how not a, much of not a foodie I am. I had, not, I had no idea. <laughs> and there were people everywhere selling corn on the cobs off the back of their bicycles and covered in garlic butter and it was so good. What's the street food like in Thailand? Ah, best in the world, eh? It's famous for it. I, I think in, the only thing that, sorry to disagree with you, but the only thing similar between Indonesia and Thailand is the weather. It couldn't, couldn't be any more different. I mean, Indonesia is the largest Muslim populated country in the world, so culturally they're driven initially by the religion. Of course, Bali is not representative of Indonesia generally anyway. It's a, like a holiday island and it's actually Hindu, not Bali, whereas the rest of the, not Muslim, whereas the rest of the country is Islamic. Yeah, street food in Thailand, banging. I used to, before I went veg, they used to do this, do this like grilled chicken that they cover in like this sugary sauce and then you have it with sticky rice and this other special spicy sauce called Nam Jim Jiao and it's just heaven. Oh, that sounds really good. I know. And then also the fresh the fresh fruit and the fresh fruit shakes on the side of the road. Yeah. Also cut like sugar, but it's so amazing. Oh, oh, I can't get enough of it. I think I had like six mango smoothie things yeah. every day when yeah. I was in Indonesia. Yeah. So bad, but so yeah. good. <laughs> half mango, half sugar. Yeah. Like, that's why I liked it. <laughs> 
As well as visiting every country, you have made it your mission to go to the North and South Poles and climb the Seven Summits. Why did you decide you wanted to do this? Well, part of it I kind of alluded to earlier. I want to generally, it's always like former marine, public school educated marines and all this who do all this kind of stuff. And I really want to show that it's possible to come from any kind of background um, and not have like wealthy benefactors. I really want to show that it's possible to be working class and do this kind of stuff. And then also I want to be able to test myself. You know, like you don't really know who you are until you struggle deeply. And I don't mean struggle like do a 10K or a marathon where you think you're struggling. I mean like weeks and weeks and months and months of agony and bleeding and you go to these dark places in your mind and you're like, are you going to quit or are you not going to quit? And you don't truly know yourself till you reach those points and then you see who you really are. And I believe that deeply. And once you get through it once, then you can push yourself further the next time. And I really enjoy that personal journey as well. So the Arctic isn't a country or a continent because there's no actual land mass. It's just like a big sheet of ice. And Antarctica has no countries in it, but it is a continent. And it's divided up and owned by seven different countries. Uh, not really, just tiny little, like a few hundred meters here, square meters here and there. Not, it's not the whole thing's not really divided up like that. So what? So the parts of it are owned by different countries. Who owns the rest of it? What? What is it? <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> it's, I, I don't even really say you would say that someone owns any of it. You have like McMurdo Station, which I think belongs to the UK, for example. And of course, the buildings and the research and everything belong to the UK. But I think owning it, the terminology is kind of tricky because no one really owns it. Do they? I mean, you don't need a visa to get there. There's no passports issued. It's not really owned by anyone. Because nobody lives there, right? There's no... Exactly. Yeah. It's bloody freezing. Yeah. <laughs> and you've ticked off the North Pole already. You decided to enter the North Pole Marathon. That sounds pretty hard, like a pretty hardcore running event. How much running had you done before that? Uh, none. That was my first marathon. I'd actually never... I've never even, I'd never run 10K before. I had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> Uh, I did train for it. I run a non-profit where we build a lot of schools and stuff. So I've done three. We've done three projects: one in Jordan, I think, and one in Indonesia, and one in India in the three months leading up to the North Pole. So I've been. I was running like half marathons every morning on the treadmill or in the evening on the treadmill while we were running the projects. But it was like plus thirty-five degrees. I was sweating like crazy. And then the day after the project in India finished, I went to New Delhi and flew to. Norway and then connected on to Svalbard, which is a kind of island that belongs to Norway. It's the highest, north, most northern point it's where the hop off point is for the North Pole. And I got off the airplane, it's like minus 30. Thinking, I am screwed here. And all, obviously, all my training had been in roasting hot humidity. Suddenly, I'm absolutely freezing my nads off. So, what was it like? What was it like running a marathon in that environment? Well, I'd never run a marathon before. So, I didn't know how my body was going to, how it should, let's say, in inverted commas, how it should feel. Felt pretty awful, to be honest. <laughs> but I think it must feel awful all the time anyway. It's kind of okay. When I tell when I tell people about the North Pole Marathon and stuff, most people want to know about the cold and stuff. But the guy, for example, I co-founded our, our charity with, he lives in, he's Canadian. So he doesn't think anything of minus 30. They have that for months a year. It's mental. But I was trying to say to him, like, it's really cold. He's like, yeah, mate, that's what our Christmas is like every year. But your eyelashes freeze and your not the hairs in your nostrils freeze and everything. You get frostbite in your cheekbones and your forehead. Pretty wild. That sounds pretty awful. How, how long did it take? I can't really remember my time, actually. I think it was quite slow. Five and a half hours or something like that, or six hours. Can't really remember. I don't think that's slow. <laughs> I think I'd struggle to run on on a pavement for for that long, and let alone in minus thirty on ice. Yeah, because it's in snow. It's like it's in like sometimes you're up to your knee in snow, so every steps 
quite hard to keep running. Oh God, I'd be there all day doing that. <laughs> yeah, one the guy who finished last. He was if you ever Google North Pole Marathon or videos of it, it was like a big posh English guy with a beard and his whole face is frozen. He took like nineteen hours or something. Yeah, that that would be me. <laughs> but that means you're that means you're exposed to minus. So Svalbard is like minus thirty. When we reached the North Pole and that like Russian military jet thing, whatever you call it. We get and you get off in the North Pole and you're huddling in your little tent before you start the run. It's like minus forty something there. Like so, that if you're the slower you are, the more time you're exposed to that crazy weather. Whereas when you finish, you go back in the tent and the Russians have got like whiskey and beers and everything, and you heat up. It's nice. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Moving on to your main course now, what have you chosen for main? Either Beyond or Impossible Burger. I've got no brand affiliation, so either is fine. <laughs> I've, I do like a bit of uh, fake meat. I wouldn't really describe myself as anything. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. I'm not uh, necessarily a huge meat eater either. But I do like the kind of the meat substitute stuff. And I, I do eat a fair amount of that. Like we said, the Linda McCartney stuff, I, I really like that. I haven't actually tried an Impossible or Beyond Burger yet. What are they like? Oh, yeah. They are like, so this is what I'm saying, kind of about the cowspiracy thing as well. Vegans or vegetarians will tell you that they're the best burger ever, right? Because they're overreaching the reality. It's like a six out of 10 burger, which when you can't eat meat anymore, is like a 10 out of 10 burger. And you're just delighted that they've invented this thing that is actually like a decent burger. So I'm delighted with it. I'll take my six out of ten to my grave. It's fine. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Have you ever been to Greg's? Of course. Those sausage rolls. I could live on them. Oh, I love them. Every time I'm back home visit my family, I, I smash with four or five of them as soon as I land. Oh, they're so good. I got a bit addicted to them and I was eating them all the time. And you kind of forget that just because they're vegan, it doesn't actually mean they're healthy. So I was like, actually, I need to rein this in a bit because vegan tends to have this like healthy connotation attached to it. But Exactly. You're so right. They're they're not healthy so I had to rein it in but also because I was like these are great like who would ever want to eat a normal sausage roll again they're healthy for your soul Alex they're healthy for your soul they are healthy for soul that's right but I also went to this little bakery we've got in Salisbury and I had a, a real sausage roll and I was like hang on a minute <laughs> These vegan sausage rolls are good, but they are not as good as a real sausage roll. <laughs> exactly. I know. People don't want to be honest about it. It's true. No. I think you have to condition yourself to think, actually, these are really good, these vegan things. I don't miss the meat stuff. And to be honest, it is good, but it's just not quite as good as the, as the real thing yet. I know. But when it's been five years or 10 years, you haven't touched meat. I mean, it's just, you're just, it's like you're cheating but you're not actually eating, so it's great. Yeah, no, I get that completely. So how are you building your burger up? Are you having anything else in it? Are you having salad? Are you having sauces? What are you having in there? I mean, yes, I should add at this juncture that on my mother's life, I have probably cooked three meals in the last decade. <laughs> wow. that, that, includes that includes breakfast and everything. I literally don't do any cooking ever. I found someone that is worse than me. Brilliant. <laughs> And like, I really never, ever, ever, ever cook. I could, I could have no cutlery in my house. It'd be fine anyway. So when you're asking me like the ins and outs of building a burger, this could be quite a messy affair. I don't know. A green lettuce leaf, some blue cheese. Um, what else? What do they put on burgers? I don't know. What do they put on burgers? Well, do you have a tomato in there? Yeah, maybe a tomato. No cucumber. And certainly no American pickle rubbish either. No, uh, yeah. Get that out of my burger too. They're awful. Yeah. Oh, and then a, and a proper... You think, yeah. Any, any. If you ever talk to an immigrant in Asia like myself, the bread is important. I tell you, there's so much sugar in this bloody bread over here. It has to be 
proper non-sugared bread bun. Oh, nice. So you having like a nice, fresh bakery roll. Sesame seeds on it. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. And you having any tomato ketchup on it or? No, no, mayo. Fake, that fake, that fake mayo. And then, and then maybe truffle fries. Uh, truffle fries oh truffle fries are good truffle fries is a good choice and what do you think of people eating burger a burger with cutlery i certainly even if they came to my house i would certainly put a knife and fork beside the burger would you kind of have it but i wouldn't no but i wouldn't expect anyone to use them and i certainly wouldn't be using them. no i think it's wrong i think people who eat burgers with cutlery is weird <laughs> You have, to set, you have to set them out, though, to pretend that you're more cultured than you are. And then when they don't use them, then you can then revert revert to norm. Ah, okay. Mind tricks. <laughs> so the Seven Summits, how are the Seven Summits mission going? Uh, well, COVID threw a spanner in the works. I was supposed to... I've done four of the seven. I've done the highest mountain in Africa, Kilimanjaro. It's pretty easy. I did the highest one in Europe, which is Elbrus in Russia. A lot of people think it's Mont Blanc, including me, until you actually find out that it's not. And then I did the highest one in Australasia. So like kind of, that's all kind of Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand. That's called Punchak Jaya. That's quite a tricky one, actually. It's expensive and tricky. And then what was the other one that I did? Oh, South America, Argentina, Aconcagua, that I failed once. And then I had to wait another year for the season to come back again. That was brutal. That was my biggest failure of my life and a tough 12 months waiting to try again. And then I just did it. Actually, I finished it in January this year. My buddy went blind and near the summit and had to get evacuated. He's okay now. Jeez, yeah, he got snow blindness. Yeah, uh, no altitude. His nervous system shut down. Blind, blind. I couldn't see for like completely blind for days and then weeks and months until and then he's maybe only the last few months. What it's like ten months ago. Finally, he's come back to normal. But anyway, then I was supposed to do Alaska for North America Denali in June this year, but obviously COVID cancelled it. And then I was due for Everest in April next year. But I think I'll push. Everything 12 months later. So I think I'll do Denali next summer after the row and then Everest April after that. And then hopefully find some company to pay for me to do the one in Antarctica because it costs 50 grand. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, all of these things are a lot of money. I've got, I've got a friend who is also attempting the seven summit. She's only got one left, which is the Australasia one. Uh, so her COVID has messed up her plans as well. And I've got a friend who uh, has recently skied to the South Pole. So that took her five years of planning and stuff to get there and fundraising and stuff. So yes. I know you talk about planning and training, but the majority of all that time is actually just bloody fundraising and saving. It's so expensive. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you you say Killy was was an easy one. I've attempted Killy and I only made it to Gilman's Point, which is about 200 meters off the summit and they wouldn't let me go any further. And to be honest, there was no way I could have gone any further because I was so ill. Yeah, when it hits you, it hits you, it hits you. Yeah, this was back in 2006 and... I kind of still feel like I have unfinished business with that mountain. So I'd love to go back one day and hopefully now I'm armed with experience and knowledge and I'd be able to make it to the top. But have you ever suffered from any altitude sickness? Yeah, yeah. When we when I failed at Concagua the year before, it's pretty brutal. And then I climbed, um, my mum, a really good, a really close relationship with my mum, obviously single parent and she's got Parkinson's. So then for her 70th birthday last year, her and I and a group of people from my blog we climbed Mount Fuji together and my mum got all the way to the top actually at 70 with Parkinson's. It was amazing. That's incredible. And she got such bad altitude sickness. We got evacuated and ended up in hospital, but she's okay now. And she made it to the top. Wow. How high is Mount Fuji? Mm, three, three, I think. So it's not so high, but high enough. I mean, 
in your 70s, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow, that's really impressive. Um, who are you going to Everest with? Have you picked a tour operator? Uh, yes, it's funny you say that, actually, because I literally chatted with the company this morning. The one who had, it's a, it's a small company, I think he's Austrian, it's called Furtenbach. His, the guy who owns the company's name is Lucas Furtenbach, and then he owns a, a, tr- a company called Furtenbach Adventures, so I think it's going to be with them. If it's not with them, it's going to be some free advertising with them. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> So which one is is the next one on the hit list? Which comes first? It'll be Denali, which should be okay as long as the weather. I mean, the thing is with these mountains, the weather can just can destroy everything, you know? No matter how well you train or how strong you think you are, like nature's stronger and, that, and it can just, it's hard to disassociate. If the weather beats you, there's nothing you can do and you have to wait another year. Yeah, it's pretty demoralizing, isn't it? So I, I don't have any desire particularly to do Everest. I, I've seen it from the summit of Merapeak, which was like six and a half thousand meters. Oh, cool. And I, yeah, I felt like I was really high. I felt like I was like right up there. But then you look over and you see Everest, and you're like, oh, that is so much higher. <laughs> but I would love to go and do Denali. I have friends in Alaska and they keep trying to convince me to go over and do it. But it's a, yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's a little bit out of my price range at the moment, unfortunately. So I don't know that I'll be able to. How much is it? Like seven grand or something? Yeah, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Like, no, I know that. I know that. I, I, the reason I'm doing it next year, I've already paid it and they wouldn't give me a refund with COVID. Ah, okay. Well, maybe. We'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Cost a fortune to do this stuff. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's so expensive. So I know when I, I did Killy and Everest Base Camp, the, the food they provide for you is pretty incredible considering where you are and the facilities they have to make it. Has all your food been provided for you on these mountains or do you use those dehydrated meals on your trips? Yeah, dehydrated meals. They're great. What's your go-to? When I did the Marathon de Sabla, I had the um, expedition food, that orange one, and I just had this like veggie chicken korma thing, which was actually delicious in the evenings. But now I think about it, I, in the mornings, I had this kind of like granola, high-calorie, thousand-calorie granola thing. You're supposed to have hot. When you're, doing, you're so destroyed from the consecutive marathons, you end up not cooking the water and you just have a cold. And it just makes me want to vomit now. But now I'm speaking about it out loud. I'm thinking, you know what? That It's probably that Pavlov's dog thing. I probably hated it because it was in the morning and I knew I had to do another marathon every day. Whereas the evening me had finished the marathon and I was resting and eating. And that's probably why I enjoyed it. And I say, oh, yeah. You know what I mean? But whatever the highest calories, to be honest, is what you need. Is there a meal that you would like to see as a dehydrated meal that doesn't exist yet? That's a great question. I mean, from flavor perspective, I would need to think about it. But depressing pragmatism would answer whatever has got zero taste and almost zero kilograms weight. And you can take it in one gulp and it gives you everything you need. That's actually better for expeditions. You have to carry it up the bloody mountain or carry it on the ultramarathon, don't you? So, like when you do the marathon de Sable, that's six marathon, six days in the Sahara. And you've got to, you've got to do you know, part of the rules of the race is you've got to keep 6,000 calories a day in your bag. So your bag weighs like 15 kilos and you're in this bloody sand already and it's just horrific. Whereas if they, if they could somehow stack the calories into smaller packets and lighter packets, it'd be a lot easier. I'm waiting for the day when they invent that pill that you just take and it covers everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to move on to your dessert now. What have you chosen for pudding? Chocolate lava cake. Oh, Chocolate lava cake sounds so good. The hot one with, a, with, a, with cold ice cream and then you, you cut into Instagram style and it pours out. 
Oh, I mean, I could eat that now. It is only 10 o'clock in the morning here, but I could definitely eat that <laughs> right now. You can't go wrong with anything with chocolate in. You said, you mentioned ice cream. What type of ice cream are you having? I can't. Hopefully none of my friends listen because I constantly fight with my Canadian guy, the co-founder of my charity. Because we if we're out traveling together running these projects, he always gets vanilla ice cream. I always tell him vanilla is not a flavor. It's like a lack of flavor. But actually, when it's with chocolate gato or lava cake, then it would be vanilla because you don't want it to detract from the flavor of the lava cake. It makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. In fact, that actually backs up my argument that it's not a flavor because it shouldn't detract from that. I'm going to tell him that. And when, and when you're not having it with chocolate lava cake, what would be your go-to ice cream flavor? Do you know, it's just so bad again. It just shows my lack of class, but I go for a trashy, sugar-filled Ben & Jerry's, whatever. Yeah, Ben & Jerry's good. Have you tried their non-dairy varieties? Caramel Sutra or that fish food or the brownie one. They go, what about cookie dough is my favorite? Do you like that one? Oh, that cookie dough. It's about bloody 10 quid a tub though, isn't it? Cost a fortune. Not here, they're not. <laughs> Oh, really? Yes, it's like 10 pounds, 10 pounds a tub over here. It's like 400 baht. Ouch. That's a lot. I think I'd pay it though. <laughs> I've only bought it once in my life. It's just good. Every, because every, you're sitting there watching your movie at home and every gulp you take, you're like, well, that's 80p. Well, that's 50p. Can't handle it. Here, there's always somewhere there on offer. They're like £2.50. I remember that when I was at uni in England. Buy one, get one free or whatever. Buy one, get one half price. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah you'd never buy one at full price. It'd just be crazy. <laughs> have you tried any of these non-dairy varieties of ice cream? Yeah, Ben & Jerry's, they have it. Yeah, yeah, they're good, aren't they? Yeah, I'd say again, I'd say it's like a 6 out of 10, maybe even a 7. Yeah, because you think, this is great. They've done a really good job. And then you eat a real ice cream and you're like, actually, hang on a minute. <laughs> We're just at the start of the curve. It's coming. Don't worry. It is coming. It is coming. I'm really pleased that you brought up chocolate in your menu because I did a bit of a deep dive into your Instagram and I saw a picture of you in Taipei and you were eating in a toilet themed restaurant and you had a plate in front of you with what I'm assuming was chocolate, but it was in the shape of like a Mr. Whippy Poo and you're drinking out of a urinal shaped cup. <laughs> I cannot tell you how badly I want to go to this place. Tell me everything about it. What was the Mr. Whippy Poo made from? <laughs> There's actually a blog post on my blog about it. It's called, um, I think the restaurant's called Modern Toilet, but in, in, in Chinese, but yeah, it's called Modern Toilet. And when you walk in, I thought they had a photograph of the outside. If you just saw the Instagram photograph, but if you actually go to the blog post, the actual restaurant's like a massive, you walk into a massive toilet and the whole thing's toilet thing. And you know what? Like, of course, it's super clean. Taiwan's a really modern, ultra modern developed country. In fact, it's an amazing country. Taiwan, I love, I could live there. But you're just the association you have with toilets and stuff. It's so difficult to eat, Alex. Of course, you know it. A clean urinal that you're eating out of, or whatever. But it's so difficult to eat. It actually feels really weird. Uh, yes, I had chocolate, and then I think I have lemonade or something out of the urinal. It's so weird. Oh, I want to go so badly. Yeah, it looks cool. amazing, cool. and it looks just so bonkers that I I want to go. Taiwan's never really been on my radar, but after seeing that, and actually after meeting a girl from Taiwan who I met in New Zealand, and she just said it was incredible. There's mountains and hiking and it's just so beautiful I, it's really up there on places list of places i want to yeah, go exactly yeah completely and get it before the un decide to give taiwan to china oh really okay good tip <laughs> i don't know if you ever noticed in the olympics they're not taiwan is the name of the country and it's obviously a country but when they're when they're in the olympics for example they're known as the chinese republic of taiwan okay they're not called, they're not called taiwan it's all political because china holds so much power they can just wave their power around and they don't recognize taiwan as a country they recognize it as part of China. The girl I met uh, in New Zealand was called Korea. 
and she was from Taiwan. But I kept telling people, oh, yeah, I've met this really great girl. She's from Korea. And I was like, hang on a minute. That's not, that's not her. <laughs> it was very, very confusing. But yeah, she was so lovely. Yeah, maybe I'll give her a call and say, hey, fancy a visitor. That's, it's a nice thing, isn't it? When you've been around the world and done these things that you know all these people and you can kind of call them up and say, yeah, you want a visitor. Yeah, beautiful. As if you weren't busy enough with all these crazy adventure plans, you've also set up a nonprofit, which we touched on a little bit. Tell us a bit about that. In 2015, I was finishing my second year visiting every country in Africa. And that brought me up to like 185 countries of the 197 in 2015. So I had like 10 left or whatever. And I knew I was on the home straight for my country. I knew I was going to finish. And the media were picking up my story a lot about like visiting every country, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to use my social media for something positive. And, you know, like everyone just seems to want to show off like they're hot ass in a bikini or their six pack showing off on Instagram. It makes me, I just think like people have got a lot of power with the platform and they could use it for something good. And a lot of people don't. And I didn't want to succumb to that same crime. So anyway, I wanted to leverage my social media following and my blog to do something positive. So then me and my buddy initially just thought we were in West Africa for a long time traveling around. And you know, like there's me growing up in inverted commas, poor in Ireland. And then you actually travel, really travel. And you realize that if you're in the lowest 1% 1% of the income demographic in Ireland, you're in still in the highest 1% globally. And you're still very lucky to have healthcare and education and all the rest. And we see what real poverty is and we wanted to give something back. So we decided to raise five grand initially through my blog and Facebook page and Instagram or whatever. And we weren't going to organize any trip. We just said, everyone donate to this page. And once we reach five grand, we'll pay for it. We'll randomly draw a name out of the hat whoever wins, I'll personally fly them to Senegal and we'll meet you in Senegal and you'll see what we're doing with the five grand. So we did that and this girl from Texas won. And what happened was loads of people who donated were like, can I just come anyway? Can we just pay to come? We want to come. We want to come anyway. And we were like, "Uh, yeah, sure. So we did that and then put all the money together from the tickets. And then we partnered with a local NGO in in Senegal and, and that went really well. But then we figured that Actually, there's a space in the market for people who want to go on a true adventure, but also try to do something worthwhile. That's also a non-profit. So you're not actually just lying in the pockets of another big conglomerate. So then the next year, we did one in Cambodia in 2016. And then in 2017, we did another two projects, one in Thailand and one in Indonesia. And then six the next year and 10 last year, 15 or whatever. And now we've done loads. Cool. That is so awesome. I think that's such an amazing idea. It's brilliant, especially because if you've been to some of these places, like you say, and just see, like you think maybe you grew up in difficult circumstances, it's kind of nothing compared to what some people grew up in. Exactly. 100%. I I volunteered in a similar organization back in 2006 called Madventurer, and we built two new classrooms in a remote mountain village in Tanzania. It's one of the best things I've ever done, and I'd love to do more of that. But unfortunately, like, volunteering can come with a pretty high hefty price tag on it which is probably why i haven't done it since but yeah because to be honest like now from i'm speaking from the other side of it because the projects require a lot of funding you know we don't take any profit from it at all and we've actually got a project at the moment getting built right now in tanzania as you speak it's funny you talk about tanzania we just finished the project yesterday but yeah because it does come with a big price tag of course because ultimately what if you can find a trustworthy organization of course they need as many hands to, to do the physical labor as possible. But what's even more valuable to the projects is, is the funding. It's so hard to get funding for them. So it's just a constant battle. Absolutely. But definitely, if anyone can afford to go and do something like that, it's one of the most worthwhile things you'll ever do. It's, it's such a great experience. 
So, Johnny, moving on to your drink, what are you going to have to drink with your meal? Well, having been to every country in the world and sampled alcohol in probably all of them apart from Saudi, I will have to revert to type and go for a cold pint of Guinness. Of course it's Guinness. I think I'd be a bit disappointed (laughs) if you didn't choose Guinness. (laughs) What is it about Guinness that Irish people like so much? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they put it in our primary school lunches and we don't know about it. I love it so much. And you know what? It's really famous that Guinness doesn't travel well, and that is true. But I always say a bad Guinness is better than no Guinness. So it doesn't matter what country it's available, I'll still take it. It's a bit like your kind of six out of 10 theory, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Although getting it back in Ireland is something special. I've been to the Guinness factory. And um, I mean, it was a nice day out, but it was completely wasted on me. I don't like it. I can pour a decent pint of Guinness, but uh, yeah, never managed to draw the kind of shamrock on the top. Well, we don't do that in Ireland, actually, but yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, I've never managed to draw anything on the top of any pint. Guinness Factory for a bit of segue. If you're ever going for anyone listening to Guinness Factory in, in Dublin, first of all, it's amazing. Second of all, if you can afford another, I don't know, I can't, I can't remember how much it costs, maybe 15 euro or 20 euro or something. If you can afford another 20 euro and do the VIP one, the VIP one is amazing. And also, if you're going to go and get a bit drunk there, you get pretty much unlimited booze for that extra 20 or 30 euro, whoever it is. But you go try all these different kind of Guinnesses, like original ones from like 50 years ago and all these funky tastes. Amazing. I really recommend it. Can can you handle your alcohol? How many pints of Guinness do you think you can get through? I mean, if it's a sport day of sport and you're watching like a midday kickoff and then two or three more games and then going out to the bar at night, you could easily do 10. Oh, <laughs> I would be apps. I'd be hospitalized, I think, if I drank 10 pints of Guinness. <laughs> it's in my blood, though. It's in my blood. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It just it's just so thick and heavy. I don't know how you can just consume that volume. It's so smooth though. It's like like sleeping on a silk sheet. Ah. <laughs> Johnny, like I said at the start, you applied to be part of the Atlantic Crossing. And as you probably would have guessed by now, not you, because obviously you already know, but people listening, you have been successful and you're part of the crew. You haven't had any experience on the ocean. So what made you take the plunge and apply? I really believe in this whole concept of the law of attraction, really deeply believe it, but not some kind of hippie, like spiritual version of it. I believe like if you really want something enough, you manifest it by making choices in your life that even subconsciously are dragging you to the direction you want to go, right? Doesn't just mean sharing an Instagram quote. It means really making sacrifices, blah, blah, blah. So a few years ago, I know an Irish guy who rode across the Atlantic and I came out the blue to me. I was like, whoa, this guy is amazing. That's something I definitely want to do in my life. I was just finishing my countries. And then when I did the Sahara Ultramarathon, the guy sleeping beside me every night was a former Marine posh guy but a lovely guy and he had rode the Atlantic and I was like whoa this is weird like this is two guys I'd never heard of this and then within eight months I know two people who've done it now and then he put me on to a Facebook group about ocean rowing and then I just like like a, a weird stalker in the corner just followed every post and just thought everyone was an absolute hero that was doing it and how terrifying it is and how terrifying the ocean is and maybe one day I'm going to do this and then you guys popped up and I was like oh whoa this is even more terrifying and there's like even a bit of a chance that it could happen and then I started doing research about you guys and I know that one of your rows you did for Parkinson's I know it was young onset but generally the disease of Parkinson's and I was thinking like obviously with my mom and we raised a lot of money for Parkinson's I was like this is it this is the universe telling me I've got to apply for this so that's 
when I did yeah, then I applied and then harassed you guys. <laughs> well, it's all been put together very last minute. And by the time this episode goes out, you'll be about a month away from setting off across the Atlantic Ocean. COVID dependent, of course, so many aspects of it depend on COVID, but we've got everything crossed that it's going to go ahead. How are you feeling about it? Uh, scared. I find the ocean really scary. And I'm not a very good swimmer. I'm actually taking swimming lessons in Bangkok at the moment. I had my second lesson yesterday. I've never, because I never learned how to swim. We didn't have a swim pool growing up in, in, in my town in Ireland or anything. So then the only swimming I would ever do would be like, as I've got older and I made some money online, I'd be in like nice hotels. I would have swimming pools and swim up bars or whatever. So I would just, of course, I, it's not like I can't swim. You know, if someone dropped me in a swimming pool, I'm fine. But if someone asked me to do 10 lengths, there's no way I'd be able to do it. So I'm trying to put that right. So that's scary. The rowing, I've never rowed before. I just... I just actually had to change gyms here in Bangkok to find a gym with a row machine so I can try to get used to that movement. Um, and that's what I'm smashing every day at the moment. So that's scary too. I'm worried that like, I might be the weak link there because I don't have a clue what I'm doing with, with, a, with an oar in my hand. So I'm scared about being the weak link. I'm scared about the ocean. But then like, I also feel a compulsion. If you're terrified of it, then all the more reason to do it. Yeah, that's what's making you want to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd never rode anywhere either before I rode across the Atlantic. So don't worry, you'll you'll just get on and there'll be no choice. You'll have to do it. So there's nothing else to do. <laughs> God, it is daunting though, I'll tell you that. And, and what are you most looking forward to? Um, I'm most looking forward to and dreading almost in equal measure disconnecting from my online business and online persona and and social media and all that. It's, I'm really looking forward to having almost infinite time to think about life and where I am and where I'm going and what I can do without the constant notifications and phone calls and everything. I think it's a very rare opportunity to have that actually in 2020. Yeah, is it's one of the things that is really good. You do feel you do feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, and it, you don't get that feeling very often. So it is it is a good one. And there, I guess there's only one thing I can guarantee you about your row. And that is that the first drink when you get to land, whatever it is, will be the best drink of your life. It will be amazing. Some, someone came over to the boat and gave us a Coca-Cola and I hate Coca-Cola, but it was at that moment, it was the best thing I'd ever tasted. It was incredible. So yeah. Yeah, it's just focusing one day at a time until then. Johnny, I'm going to read your menu back to you. You have chosen a pint of Irish tap water, bread with oil and balsamic vinegar, a goat's cheese salad with a kilo of goat's cheese, Beyond Meat or Impossible Meat burger, chocolate lava cake, and a pint of Guinness. How does that sound to you? Are you happy with your choices? That is actually amazing. <laughs> do you want to make, does it make you want to go and eat it all now? <laughs> 100%. Maybe I'll th- I might just actually choreograph that for my last meal before I start this bloody thing. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for sharing your dream post-adventure meal. No, no problem. It's good luck with the podcast. Thanks so much for putting together Monkey Fist originally and ultimately me having the opportunity to do this. It's amazing. Every country in the world. That's amazing. It just makes me realize how many 
countries there are out there to see and how many I haven't been to yet and how many I want to go to. So I better start writing that list of things I want to do now. As soon as COVID is over, I'm out of here. If you want to keep up with Johnny's adventures, go and follow him on Instagram. It's at one step forward and it's one step number four and then ward. And that's also his web address. And you can also find the links in the show notes. If you would like to follow the podcast, head over to Instagram and we are at Hungry for Adventure Podcast. And if you would like to support the podcast, head over to ko-fi.com and you can donate the price of a soda. And all those links are also down in the show notes. If you're on iTunes, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast. And of course, it makes me feel good when I see a five-star review come in. I will be back after Christmas with some more people who are hungry for adventure.